You're listening to the weekly podcast of Hope Community Church, where we desire to see people transformed by the love of Christ. Join us as we study God's Word together. If you have a Bible this morning and you want to follow along, we are at the end of the fifth chapter of a letter written by Paul to uh, the Ephesian church. If you have been following along, you're saying to yourself, oh, that's the thing that talks about marriage. Indeed it does. Some of you maybe have read, this is a while back, Irma Bombeck, she is a a columnist writer. This was her observation about marriage. She said, marriage has no guarantees. If that's what you're looking for, go live with a car battery. (laughs) Ruth Graham, who was married to Billy Graham, uh, a couple decades into their marriage, she was one day having a conversation with somebody, and the person asked her, you and Billy now have been married for like a couple decades. Just honestly, in all those years, have you ever thought of divorce? She thought for a minute. She said, divorce, no. Murder, yes. Maybe you've heard the words of comedian Rita Rudner who said, I love being married. It's so great to find the one special person that you can annoy for the rest of your life. She said, men who have a pierced ear are better prepared for marriage. They've experienced pain and they've bought jewelry. (laughs) Enough of comedians. This was from the great wise one, Albert Einstein. He said... Men marry women with the hope that they will never change. Women marry men with the hope that they will change. Invariably, they are both disappointed. (laughs) Not all the voices that are talking about this are negative. Let me share with you some more positive words. This is from Winston Churchill. I love this. He said, my most brilliant achievement in my life, and he had a, a storied life, was my ability to persuade my wife to marry me. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, said this, let the wife make the husband glad to come home and let him make her sorry to see him leave. Marriage is a gift, but it's a complicated one. I want to talk about this this morning from Ephesians chapter 5. To talk about it, it can be painful. Because everything in life that has the potential to be a gift and a blessing can also cause great pain. But we don't want to run away from it. We want to run towards it. And if you're here this morning and you're not married or you were married, or the good news is that this, this, these words are are addressed to married couples, but they're actually talking about something that's actually much bigger that that calls all of us. Christianity teaches about marriage an ethic of mutual and reciprocal obligation. So this text in, in Ephesians 5 is actually the longest text in the Bible about marriage. Strangely, the main idea of the text is not about marriage. It's about something else. 
You've heard me say this before. The, the Bible that you hold in your hands, if you open it, you'll notice numbers. There's like Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 and 4 and 5 and there's all these verse numbers. When it was originally written, those numbers were not there. That doesn't make them unbiblical. They were just added much later for us who are modern readers to help us find our way in this huge piece of literature. That's a good thing. What's not always good is sometimes the numbers and the little titles that also weren't in there to be are, are put in places where they interrupt the idea. Well, that's what kind of happened here. Because this text actually starts not in verse 21 or 22, but in verse 18. And it's really about, if you read the text, there's two verbs that stand out. One's in verse 18 and one's in verse 21. And what it's about is about what it looks like to walk in the Spirit. So what Paul is saying is that if indeed we have understood that we are in Christ, we're united with Christ, He is in us, we are in Him, then that should touch every area of our life. How much more the place that it should be the most evident in our house. So the idea actually in this text comes from verse 18. He says this, Do not get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. How does that happen? What happens as we... He's come to live in us. What does fullness look like? Well, fullness is not that you get an extra dose. Fullness is that you allow God more place in your your inner being. And he begins to fill you. He begins to pour out through the seams. You live in union with him. So Paul goes on, what would that look like if somebody walked in the Spirit? Somebody who's walking in the Spirit, what, what does that look like? Well, he talks about three things. Let me read them for you. Verse 19, he says, Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So what does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? We said people who are filled with the Spirit, they become worshipers. They worship God. It doesn't mean that they just say words. It means that out of their inner being, they begin to direct their life and their words towards God. The second thing he says is that they give thanks. Gratitude is a mark of the Holy Spirit living in you. People who overflow with gratitude, that comes from God. That That's not usually a normal default for us. That's a work of the Spirit in us. And then he says in verse 21, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. One of the evidences of the Spirit in somebody's life is surrender and submission. We don't really like that word, submission. But you can't be filled with the Spirit 
without it. So, let's unpack then the, the verses that come after. He gives us an example of what that would look like. And the example he gives us is marriage. The mission of marriage, as he lays it out, is to teach us to love. Josiah started the service by quoting words from Jesus. Somebody asked Jesus, what is the most important thing? What's the most important commandment? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Where do you learn that? Paul says one of the places it happens is in marriage. Now the people that Paul was speaking to, in that culture, one of the greatest values put on marriage was was the importance that it had in the family structure and in the society. So you were expected to get married and bear children because that's what was important for the family. Paul's saying... That, that's important, but that's not the most important thing. That's really not what marriage is, is ultimately about. Our culture has swung like way over here. The values that we have often in marriage are these romantic sex. Those are the important things. Well, that's, that's not anti-biblical, but that's not actually the point. The point is to learn to love. Let me read it for you, starting with verse 22. He says, Wives, understand and support your husband in ways that show support for Christ. The husband provides leadership to his wife the way that Christ does to his church. Not by domineering, but by cherishing. So just as the church submits to Christ as he exercises leadership, wives should likewise submit to their husband. Husbands, go all out in your love for your wives, exactly as Christ did for the church. A love marked by giving, not getting. Christ's love makes the church whole. His words evoke her beauty. Everything he does and says is designed to bring the best out of her, dressing her in dazzling white silk, radiant with holiness. And that is how husbands should love their wives. They're really doing themselves a favor since they already are one in marriage. No one abuses his own body, does he? No. He feels, he, he feeds and pampers it. That's how Christ treats us the church, since we are part of the body. The Bible does not say anywhere that the point of marriage is for you to be happy. You won't find it in there. In our culture, that's how, how we view marriage. That the point is, This should meet my needs. I I should be happy. Gary Thomas has written a book, and the title is Marriage is Not About Happy, It's About Holy. So the point of it is to make us holy. People who love well are holy. That's what holy looks like. 
A.W. Tozer said that the holier you get, the happier you get. And it's true. So, how do you learn that? Well, you don't learn it in a classroom. You learn it in a laboratory. You learn it in the gym. You, you do it. You can sit around and talk about love all day long. But that's not how you learn to love. You, you do it in the gym. You work. So here's the ideas that jump out of the words that we just read. The first notion in these words, in chapter 5, he talks about love, but love, we only have one word for love. And it, it just describes everything and ends up describing nothing. In Greek, in other languages, there's different notions of love. The love that he's talking about here is the agape love of God. It's covenantal love. It is a love that covenants itself, it commits, it binds itself to another. The words at the end of this text are the, the, the most off-spoken words in the scripture about marriage. You find them in Genesis, you find them in Jesus, you find them here in Paul. It says this, that is why a man will leave his father and mother and he will cleave to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Those are the words that Paul uses at the end of this. What he's talking about is a covenant. This is not this light thing. This is a covenant between two families and two people binding themselves together. You'll hear people in this generation, you know what? Marriage is just too complicated. I'm, we're just going to live together. And these are the words you'll hear. I don't need a piece of paper to prove that I love. No, you don't. Today. But if you want it to go longer than four or five weeks, a piece of paper will be very helpful. So when you come to celebrate somebody's wedding, the promises they're making are not about today. That's easy. Everybody's beautiful. The, the romance is there. The promises and the paper are about five years from now. And 10 years from now, and 20 years from now, I'm making a covenant. Our culture views marriage through the lens more of romance. And, and that's not excluded from the biblical idea, but it is not the foundation. Love is the foundation. And before being a subjective thing, it is a covenantal thing. God, in the story that we have in the scriptures, is a covenant-making God. He calls Abraham, and then he makes a whole bunch of promises. This is who I am, and this is what I will do, and there is nothing you can do to change that. That's the love of God. If you look in the Old Testament, when God would make a covenant with somebody, often they would take out an animal and they would kill the animal and then they would take the animal and they would cut the animal in two and they would lay it open. And then they would walk through in between those two parts of the animal and they would say with their mouth, the covenant. That's gross. What's the point? The point is that this is serious. That if I don't keep the words that I just spoke, may the same thing that just happened to this animal happen to me. And God was willing to covenant with us as humans in relationship. 
And that's the, the picture here. We can't help ourselves. We're consumers. Don't look at me like that. You're one of them. That's just how we think. We, we buy something, and if it's good, we run with it. But two weeks later, if it's no good, we'll change it in and get another one. We ran to Costco last night with Ellen to pick up some stuff we probably didn't need. But whenever you get to the counter, at the, the people at Costco say, did you find everything you need? Well, actually, I don't need most of this, but apparently I did. We had bought something that needed to be returned, and so I was standing in the return line. And I mean, it's long. The lady in front of me comes up, and she sets this vacuum cleaner on the counter. I mean, it looked like somebody took it out and beat it with a baseball bat and ran it over rocks. This thing's not working right. And you can see the lady's face trying to not smile, like, oh, that's surprising. But it just wasn't doing whatever it was she thought her vacuum cleaner should do, and so she wanted her money back. That's like in all of us. And a lot of times that's what happens in marriage. Find somebody you're really attracted to, and this is going to be great. But then a little while later, it doesn't meet my needs quite like it did back then, and so... Let's trade it in and and get another one. And that's not the love that Paul's talking about here. This is a covenant. The Bible sees marriage as a sacrificial commitment to the good of another person. The second notion is that love is a sacrifice. If it didn't cost you anything, it's probably worth that nothing. Love sacrifices for the other. He says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's not always that dramatic. Sacrifice isn't always taking a bullet for something or giving up one of your kidneys. Uh, To use the analogy of money, if you see it in financial terms, it's not like the $100,000 investment. It's The 50 cent investment over and over and over and over again. That's what God's love looks like over and over again. So the call here is to a sacrificial love. He gave himself for us. It's also a delight. But the delight is not what you think it might be. The delight is friendship with another person, a person to do life with, and the delight is in serving. This week at elders meeting, we were reading the story about Jesus, the night of the Last Supper, and he's with his friends, and it says this in the text. It says that he loved his friends all the way to the end. And then you know what he did? He washed their feet. And he he finished washing their feet, and he he makes the remark to them. He says, I don't know if you guys were paying attention to what I just did, but that's what I want you to do. A master is not supposed to serve his servant. 
but that's what I just did. Now you go and do the same thing. And then he closes with these words. He said, act like this and you will live a blessed life. When you love like this, that's when you begin to know blessing. So, the first notion in this text is that the mission of marriage is to teach us how to love. We don't know how. The second notion that you'll find in there is he talks a little bit about the structure of marriage, and that is to teach us submission. In verse 21, and this is the verb in in this part of the text, he says this, Further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. What would that look like? He says, for wives, it means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For husbands, this means, this is verse 25, for husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. The submission that he's talking about is rooted in reverence for Christ. It's not a response to my spouse. He doesn't say to men, love your wife like Christ loved the church if she does A, B, and C. He doesn't say to wives, honor your husband if he's not a bum. It says do it not out of anything for them, but out of reverence for Christ. There's something bigger happening. Let me say first what I don't think this text is saying. In that day, there were real strict written codes for Roman culture. So in those codes, like workplace codes and family codes, and and in those codes... There was always this hierarchy, and this person is in charge, and this person, and this person. Paul is flipping that over on its head. That's not what this is about. He's saying, on the contrary, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is what it would look for a wife, and this is what it would look for a husband. He's not talking about a hierarchy. He's talking about submission. Ultimately, all of us submitting to God. Unfortunately, this text has been misused a lot of times. And at times even become abusive. You know what the whole problem with marriage is? It's those women. If they would just know their place and submit, this would go better for all of us. Yeah, if what marriage is about is for you to be served, it would go really well. But that's not actually what it's about. And that's not what this is saying. This is not about hierarchy. This is about all of us submitting to God. So he says, men, that means that you're supposed to love your wife like Christ loved the church. You're supposed to head or or lead But actually, biblical leadership doesn't look anything like the leadership that we know. That's why Jesus said to his disciples, you've heard 
it said that, that leaders lord it over those they lead. That's not what it's like in my kingdom. The leaders are the ones who serve. In fact, Jesus said, I didn't come to be served. I came to give my life. In Philippians 2, it says, Jesus did not see equality with God as something to be grasped, but instead, he gave himself even to death on a cross. So he says, that's what lead looks like. It's a call to service and sacrifice. The way that I understand that, I'm responsible for the spiritual and and physical well-being of the people that God has entrusted into my care. My wife, my children. Does that mean Ellen has no part? No, no, no. It's a team sport. But if it doesn't happen, then I'm not leading. How does it happen? It happens when you put on your servant hat and you sacrifice, and you lead. That's how Jesus led. Spiritual leadership is never harsh. It's never abusive. It never lashes out at at the people it's called to love. It's not self-seeking. It's not manipulative. So what does that look like? Ellen and I have been married for more than 30 years. In those 30 years, there's been lots of decisions that we have had to make. Decisions that concern her and me and us. I've never made a decision where Joel stands up and says, this is what is going to happen. I would be dumb to do that because in a lot of things, she's way wiser than I am. So whenever we have to make a decision, we sit down together and we have a conversation about, this is not about, okay, here's the order, and this is what, this is about learning to love each other and walk together. Does that make sense? (laughs) Some of you are going, no. (laughs) There's actually a beautiful picture. I, I think the important thing is, that it's to teach us all to submit to God. Because this, your life will not work if you don't learn how to surrender and submit to God. There's this beautiful picture in the Trinity. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. That God lives in this relationship with the Father, with God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. What does it look like? It's delightful! It says in Philippians 2 that Jesus, when he died, he submitted to the will of his Father. It was at great price. Did he do it going, oh great, I'm the one that gets chosen for this. No, he he did it with total delight. Because in their relationship, that's what it looks like. And that's the picture he's painting here. Third notion Ephesians 5.29 The power of marriage is that it uproots selfishness. Doesn't that sound like fun? 
I'll take that as a no. Marriage is actually one of the most powerful tools in the Spirit's hand that He uses to root out selfishness. And you all got the disease. You were born with it. It's deep in all of us. You can hide it in lots of ways. When you get married, all of a sudden it's looking at you 24 hours a day. I remember when we first got married. I mean, I'm a pretty good guy. If I was grumpy or mad or wanted to kick the dog or something, I could do it and nobody knew. All of a sudden, there was somebody looking at me 24 hours a day. And if you look closely in the mirror, it's not real pretty. It doesn't help to yell at the mirror. The mirror is just showing you what is. And I like... Actually, let me say it this way. Some of us excuse the selfishness in our soul because... Well, I had a difficult story. The hurts that other people put on you didn't make you selfish. They just aggravated what was already there. So marriage gives you an opportunity to look in the mirror and go, Oh, God can, God can change this if I'll submit to it. So, if you don't deal with your self-centeredness, I'm just telling you, you're going to be miserable for a long time. It's, it's the core of all of our sin. All of us want to live our lives for ourselves instead of for God. How is that ever going to be cured? Enter marriage. So Tim Keller says this is usually what happens. Uh, he says this couple wants to get married because they're attracted to each other, this wonderful person. So you get married. Starts wonderfully, loving, meeting each other's needs. And then a year in, two years in, maybe just a couple months in, you discover how selfish this wonderful person can be. And he said at the same time, they begin to make the same discovery. That the person they're married to can actually be pretty selfish too. He says usually the conclusion we come to is... that it seems pretty clear to us that our partner's selfishness is a little more problematic than our own. And that's what needs to be fixed. Paul says what Jesus is saying is that really this is for each of us an opportunity to let God heal and change us. Imagine if two spouses each said, I'm going to treat my own self-centeredness as the main problem in our marriage. What an amazing marriage that would be. That's not, at first, good news. But it's really great news that, that God has given us a place where that can be rooted out of us and we can be made to look like Him. Here's the the last picture from these words. The essence of marriage is, Paul says, that it gives us a picture of God. In verse 32, he says, 
This is a great mystery. Some of you have been saying, Pastor, that's the smartest thing you've said all day. It sure is. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying it's a mystery because it's this weird thing you can't understand. He's saying it's a mystery because it's actually not just about a man and a woman. It's about something much bigger. And the bigger is that that God actually loves us for no reason in us. That is mysterious. No matter how many times we screw up, no matter how many times we walk away, His love never changes. That is mysterious. That doesn't make sense to me. But he says, that's what all of us are actually hungry for. How will anyone ever perceive that? And Paul says, well, when a man and a woman decide to live like that, you get to see a picture of the glory of God. That's, that's amazing. He says in verse 25 to 27, he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Jesus loved his church and gave himself up for her. And then listen to verse 26. He says, To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain, wrinkle, or blemish, but holy and blameless. So he's saying, husbands, love your wives like Jesus did. What did he do? He did everything possible to make us right, so on the day that the story's over, he can present us to the Father, pure and holy. Why? Because of his sacrificial love for us. And he's saying, by that, love your wives like that. The day you got married, you stood before your family and friends and in front of a preacher, and you made promises. The day is coming when you're going to stand before God and present yourself and... Husbands, here's my wife. What is it you're going to present? He's saying that if you love like Jesus loved, that that love will actually be used by God for husbands and wives to make them into these kind of beautiful people. So he's saying... I'll pick on husbands to husbands. When you see your wife, don't, don't, don't just see the picture that you see now. See that picture. The day is coming. C.S. Lewis says that if you could see the glory, you would be tempted to bow down and worship that person. That's who your wife is going to become someday in Christ. And you have the chance to be part of that building thing that God's doing. That's amazing. A couple years ago, I preached at a church in Washington State. It was right on the Puget Sound. And every morning when I get up, there's this picture window that looks out. There's the sound. There's all these mountains. There's all. It's beautiful. At least that's what they told me. I never actually got to see it. 
Because like Cleveland, there's usually clouds in Washington. So they're telling you about this beautiful thing. You're going, hmm, yeah, wow, that's, that's really pretty. Last day, clouds never went away. Got in a plane to go home, and it flew up and went above the clouds. And all of a sudden, there's these beautiful mountains. And then the clouds finally moved, and you just saw this beautiful picture. That's what Paul's saying. The spouse that you married is a beautiful person made in the image of God. And his spirit wants to to transform them, to make them even more beautiful like Christ. At times you get to see just glimpses of that. Other times the cloud of the junk makes it difficult to see. But he says, keep looking. The day's coming. So let me close this morning. Husbands, let me ask you some questions. If you're sitting here with your wife, you can just look, look at her. Is your wife becoming more beautiful inside than she was when you first married her? Is she becoming more mature, more secure, more emotionally healthy? more holy because of your love for her? Or is she growing in spite of you? Maybe you look and you go, this hasn't gone well. Over the years, she's gotten more bitter. It's not the same woman that I married. I think what God's saying is he's inviting you into the redemptive process to join him in what he's doing. And the key to the door is love. No, no, no. Not this room. Covenantal, sacrificial love. Wives, I would ask you the same question. Is your husband more holy, more secure, more full of integrity or lover of Jesus because of the way that you honor and love him. When a person lives in an atmosphere of put-downs and neglect and coldness, in an atmosphere of criticism, withdrawal, all of us in that kind of an atmosphere shrivel up and die. Marriage is God's Gymnasium, his laboratory, his training ground to help us to learn to love. Let me close. Please do not go home with your spouse this afternoon and say, Did you hear what the pastor said? Because <laughs> I wasn't talking to your spouse, I was talking to you. What if you're here this morning and you say, you know what, Pastor, that's really great. I hear what you're saying. I need to allow God to reshape my insides. I need to grow in this. But what happens if I choose to do that and my spouse doesn't? That's hard. But it's not hopeless. 
Because ultimately this is not about them. It's about God reshaping his life in you. And there's nothing that can stop that from happening. Let me close with this story. When I was in seminary, we had a woman, Becky Pippert. She's written a book, Out of the Salt Shaker. She came and spoke at seminary and is a great storyteller. The last uh, talk she gave, she told this story about a family that she knew. It's a couple. They had been married for a number of years, and, and the husband found out that his wife was being unfaithful to him. So she, he has a conversation with her, and she informs him that not only is it true, but that she is going to leave him, and she wants a divorce, and she wants to live her life now with this other man.
message to draw you deeper into a meaningful relationship with him. Hope Community Church is located in Olmstead Falls, Ohio. If you would like to find out more about our church, please visit us at hopeolmstead.org.